Easter Sunday. Um, each Easter, as I read the Easter story for another time, there's always something that I didn't notice before. And that's exactly what happened this year. Luke 24 says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, listen to this, why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? How do you think that sounded to two mourning, grieving women looking for the body of the Lord Jesus and these angels showed up? Usually when angels show up, they say something, first of all, like, don't be afraid. You know, the Lord is with you. Not this time. These angels looked at the women and asked a really provocative question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Wow. He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. But that simple question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You know, it's, it's, it's a little angelic, ironic humor. You know, maybe they said, what are we going to say when they come? I don't know what angels do. I don't know how they talk to one another. I don't know what goes on in the preparation for these meetings. But the one said, come on, you know their lives are going to be turned upside down. You know their sorrow is going to be swept away by incredible joy and celebration. Let's just poke at this a little bit and ask them a question that will probably stump them. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you shopping for a living person among corpses? Why are you at a graveyard looking for living people? And if the women had their wits about them, they would have said, well, what living people? We're not talking about living people. Our hearts are broken because our master has died and we know that they put his body here and now we're beside ourselves. What have they done with his body? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? I don't know when it dawned on them. Living. So we know the Easter story. All of us here could recount it. They didn't know that story yet. And imagine that first encounter with this story with angels who asked them what they must have reflected on and they must have talked about for years and years to come. When we went to the tomb and the angels asked, do you remember that question that they asked us? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? You're looking in the wrong place. Don't go looking for Jesus of Nazareth among the dead. Because Jesus of Nazareth is among the living. Now quickly, get back as soon as you can to the disciples and tell them to get ready. 
for all the things that he said would happen later on. Do you, do you not remember that Jesus told you these things? And they, and they would have said, no, no, honestly, we don't. And that, that question sort of traveled with all of Jesus' followers. Do you not remember what he said? Did you not grasp that this is what the Old Testament scriptures, this is what the scriptures are all about? That the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. Did you not get that? And all of the first followers would have said, no, no, we didn't get that. So now these angels said, well, in case you didn't, let me ask you this, let us ask you this, why are you looking for the living among the dead? So as I think about that, it seems to me that there, there must be things I am to learn about that, that maybe an angel would like to come alongside me and say, hey, here's the question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? What does it mean? I think we could probably easily paraphrase it by saying, why are you looking among the dead instead of the living, right? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? What should you be doing? Well, you should be looking among the living instead of among the dead. And here you are looking among the dead instead of among the living. And logistically, the women could have said, yeah, 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 now, now you've got our heads all messed up and confused. How are we going to find the living? And, and the angels said, yeah, that's all going to take care of itself. But it occurs to me that there are several ways that actually the angels could ask me a question about how I live my life in view of the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus as a mark in time, changed everything. It changed everything. Remember how much time we've spent talking about the corruption? The fact that there is this incredible blemish in us and in all of our creation that is called corruption. It is what Satan has sown into everything that there is, and it only goes bad. And so here we are, and here's another day. Here are churches blown up and hundreds of people are killed in the country of Sri Lanka today on Resurrection Sunday. And once again, we say, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with our world? Well, we're corrupt. It's broken. We're broken. And Jesus came, and so we were at pains to wonder, what, what was it that he came to do? He didn't just come to give us a great example, although he did. He didn't just come to give us moral and ethical teaching that would guide our lives, although he did. He came to fix the corruption. And it is well beyond our understanding how it is that that was accomplished by what Jesus did. We're just given enough to understand that the, he got into the middle of the corruption. He, he found himself at the very um, crux of the corruption, and he fixed it by his death. When he died, he ended the corruption, and he started everything new. And for me and for you, the time that we came to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord was a time when we rid ourselves of our um, obedience to, our commitment to, our bondage to corruption, and we entered a new life, the life of Jesus Christ, which is to be entirely different and which is to be characterized 
by the resurrection life of Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new person. The old has gone. The new has come. You are not who you used to be. You don't want, at the core of your being, what you used to want. You're not driven at the core of your being by what used to drive you. Because you're new. You are part of the new life of Christ, the new creation. And the corruption can be rid from your life by faith in the Lord Jesus. So I believe that, and you believe that, and still we find ourselves living according to old programs. Let me just mention some of them this morning. I live, you live, I'm sure, sometimes by works instead of grace. The angels would say, not why are you looking for the living among the dead, but why are you living by works among the work of grace? Because don't we still struggle with pleasing God and being sure that he's not happy with us? We've disappointed him one more time. We show up in prayer one more time and we say, I, I, I promise I'll do better next time. I worked for a pastor once and in, in a really animated sermon, he, he, he sort of pointed his fingers and he said, young people, the only way you'll get victory over temptation and sin in your life is if you tell yourself, I'll die before I do that again. Go ahead and try that. See how well it works. Because you already did die to it. There's no amount of effort can make you good. And it doesn't matter because effort is not what's required. Faith is. Belief. Trust. And yet here we are, I think many times, we assess ourselves and we maybe assess and judge others by how well they do at being these Christian people or these good people or these loving people or these kind people. When what we need to do is just go back to Jesus and say, you know what, I'm doing it again. I'm trying again. Paul, Paul said to one church in Galatia, he said, so how's that going for you? Do you think that having been saved by grace, you're going to be perfected by works? I mean, did your works get you saved? No, that was all grace. So do you think your works are going to cut it with becoming better? No, it's still by grace. It's been said many times, but there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Yeah, it's, some of us have grown up and are growing up in families where it's all about trying to make people love us. What could I do that would make my dad love me? What would I, could I do that would make my older brother love me and stop dissing me? What could I do? Well, when it comes to God, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. However, there's also nothing you can do to make him love you less. It's not as though God calls you to the woodshed and says, all right, that was it. That was just one step over the line. You're done. He is still a God who is absolutely full of grace. One of the Malcolm Guide poems that we read on Good Friday had to do with love meeting hatred. 
and love persisting. And that just strikes me that um, the, the love of God, when it meets its equal opposite, still prevails. God loves you desperately. You have no idea how much he loves you. And you have no idea how much it grieves him that you feel as though you have to earn it. Because you can't. The littlest thing you do delights him anyway. You know, like the kid comes home from kindergarten with her painting and says, look, Daddy, look what I made for you. And Daddy looks at it, and for the life of him, he can't tell what it is. And he says, what is it, honey? It's a car. It's your car. And Daddy says, that's the best drawing of my car I've ever seen. And he's telling the truth because of who drew it. That's what God thinks about you. Do you understand that? Whatever you do that has abandoned your search for getting you know, recognition for it, credit, any of that, whatever you do, God says, oh, that was so good. That was so good. I had a, a golf partner who every time when I hit the ball, he would say, you know, of all the ways the ball could have been hit, I didn't think of that one. <laughs> he meant that in a bad way. I think God says, of all the ways that you could have responded to that situation, I hadn't thought of that one. That was beautiful. That was full of grace. It was full of love. It was full of mercy. So how about it? Would the angels say, you know what? You keep hanging around in the works region. Why? Because he's not here. He's alive. He's risen. So you can live in the grace region all the time. Another thing that I think of is that here we are, many of us looking for approval instead of realizing our acceptance. So what do we do? We, we spend our lives comparing ourselves with one another. All the time we do it, right? So there's some of us, and we don't notice them doing it, so we think they don't, but they are. They're still sorting the world because they figure that somehow or other um, there's some celestial committee that has everybody ranked. These are the ones that are really approved of, and these are the ones that, well, they could work a little harder at it, right? We are accepted. So one of the things that we are told is that we are accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in the beloved. We as parents have faced the ordeal of our children bringing home a prospective spouse. Right? So I'm going to bring Brent and Nicole up here for a little. No, I'm not. I'm going to marry this girl. You know what? And they love her. So we're all good here, right? But no matter what, when the beloved brings someone home and says, I love him or I love her, the parents say, and so do we. One day Jesus brought us home to his father. And he said, this is my bride. And God says, then they're my children as well. I love them just because. He already loves us for other reasons. But we are accepted in the beloved. As much as God loves his son, he loves us because we belong to his son. 
And honestly, that's what happens. We love all of our daughters-in-law and our son-in-law as our children. That wouldn't have happened if we just knew them casually, maybe even if we'd been friends with their families. It happened because our kids brought them home and said, I love her. I love him. Jesus brought us home and said, I love them. And the father said, and you know, I also love them with all my heart. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about praying, he said, um, oh, I don't mean that I'll ask the father on your behalf. Because the Father himself loves you. So the disciples said something to Jesus that helped him understand that what they thought was that they had no currency with the Father. They had no access, but they knew Jesus, so Jesus could get to the Father on their behalf. He said, no, nonsense. I'm not saying I'll talk to the Father for you. He himself loves you. You've talked to him. To the Father? Yeah, but be sure you call him Abba. So our kids bring home their prospective spouses and we go through the whole thing of what they're going to call us. These days, it's a little dicey. So you have to be ready to be called by your first name. That's option one. Maybe they'll end up calling you dad. Or Best thing is when you become a grandparent because then your children and in-laws have a name to call you that they can just sort of... Um, av- avoid or, you know, come around, go around the dad thing because that feels spooky. It feels weird to call you my dad. But grandpa or gramps, which is um, a version of grumps. <laughs> don't, I don't, I know. I know right? You're accepted. Do you know that? There's nothing to prove. The father loves you. He loves you in his son, with his son, and he loves you anyway. Nothing you can do. How many of us live in guilt instead of forgiveness? We've got it down theologically, but still we think we're a special case. I know sins are forgiven. I know everyone's sins are forgiven, but mm, I'm not sure about mine. Because you don't get it. See, I can't stop doing this one. And, and, and I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of it because I keep having to come to God or, you know, may, maybe in, in my Catholic tradition, I go to the priest and I'm back another time and another time and another time and he tells me what I have to do and I do it and I do it and I do it. But I'm still full of guilt for what I've done or not done. And yet, on the cross, there are people murdering Jesus. And he says, forgive them. There's a criminal on the cross. And like, you know, let's not glorify that criminal. He was a crook. He deserved to be on the cross. At least he admitted it. He said to the other guy, look, hey, have you, have you no respect? This man didn't do anything. We're here because of the crimes we've committed. And yet, in those last hours on the cross, he looked at Jesus and he said, remember me. And Jesus didn't say, okay, let's just talk about you for a minute. He said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Some people wonder about deathbed confessions. Here's one. 
you don't get closer to death than this, right? No recovery from the cross and its nails. He said, remember me, and Jesus said, you got it. You are forgiven every sin you've ever committed and ever will. Doesn't mean you have carte blanche to go do anything, just so you know, right? Because you don't want to, if you understand this. You don't want to. But everything you've ever done or thought of doing or thought about someone or about yourself that was sinful has been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is it from the east to the west? Who knows? There's no answer to that, right? It's, it's an infinite distance. When does it stop being east? When does it stop being west? The love of God is talked about in terms of its length and breadth and height and width. And, and it's, you can't find the end of any of those dimensions. The love of God. If we could fill the ocean with ink and if every quill was a, a pen that we couldn't, we, there wouldn't be enough ink to write the love of God. The love of God. And he's showering it on you. He's pouring it out on you. And on the cross, his love is being shed through the sacrifice of his son to you, to forgive you. The corruption is ended at the cross. And so you're off. Now, you would have had to pay for your own sins. And so in God's economy, one person paid for them all because he had none of his own for which he had to take responsibility. He was not responsible for the corruption of the world so he could enter into the corruption and lead victory out of the corruption so that we all are able to be set free. So if you're here this morning feeling guilty, I'm sorry for you. It's not necessary because you're forgiven. Right? Richard, what does your little chain thing say? Oh, my forgiveness. Yeah. It's good to keep that close. So why are you wallowing around in guilt instead of forgiveness? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you working works instead of entering the region of grace? Why are you looking for approval from so many people instead of bathing in the acceptance of the one who matters? And why are you in the region of guilt instead of forgiveness? Why do I spend so much of my life thinking about things that are earthly instead of heavenly? When I know, I, I know the geometry or the, you know, the, the metrics of it that this life is this long and heaven and eternity are forever. Across the street, down the hill, across the next street. Why, why is so much of me about my life on earth and so little of me about my destiny in heaven, the, the new kingdom, the new heaven and earth? Why are we living in a society that is wandering around in the region of pleasure 
instead of the region of joy. Money, sex, and power, right? Why, why would we be stimulated and scintillated by the pleasures of a corrupt, broken world instead of enjoying the joy of the Spirit? That's a gift from him to us. But I think sometimes he shows up and says, so you have to kind of choose. Do you want to keep on chasing pleasure, trying to become happy? Because here's some of the story of the Bible about that. God even says about his own people in the Old Covenant, my people have committed two incredibly bad sins. First of all, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water, of real joy. And secondly, they've, they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. When do we get to realize that all the pleasure the world offers us out of its corruption is an empty, broken cistern that can't hold any water? One of the themes I love about C.S. Lewis is in the, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the story of Edmund and the Turkish Delight. And by the way, for those of you who know that I love Turkish Delight and often give it to me, God bless you. Right. If you bring your siblings to me, says the Wicked Queen, I will give you more Turkish Delight. Edmund betrays his siblings. And then he comes to the queen and he says, please, your majesty, may I have some more Turkish delight? And what does she give him? Dry, crusty bread. It's a powerful image, isn't it? Because the world promises Turkish delight. What we see, what we imagine, what the TV's full of, what the social media is full of, all that pleasure. It's not long until it turns into dry, crusty bread. So why do we, we have these celebrities who come to the point in their lives of saying, I have everything, and I'm deeply unhappy. Why do I often live um, thinking I have to be able and powerful when Jesus has shown me that weakness is actually the key to the kingdom of God and to the power of God. Um, why are you in the region of being powerful, looking for um, being prestigious, being successful, when Jesus showed us that weakness is, th is the acceptable demeanor for those that are God's children and who want his kingdom to come? How weak did Jesus need to become? So weak that he was confined by nails onto a cross. He could not move. He could not move an inch. And in that weakness, the power of God was unleashed against the horrors of hell and the vehemence of Satan, and it won. Weakness won over strength. Weakness won over power. So somehow or other, if I find my way tomorrow, the next day at work, trying to figure out how I can get a better job, a better position, a better opportunity, better influence, better prestige, better respect, then 
the angel might say, well, that's kind of weird. Why are you in the region of power and success instead of weakness? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The last thing. Related to this one that we've just looked at, but why am I looking for recognition instead of humility? Why does it matter to me that people know who I am? Instead of saying, it doesn't matter who I am. It honestly doesn't matter who I am. Do you know who I am? No. Good, that's good. We, we, we need to shed the world's region and say, the angels are asking us a pretty provocative question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why is much of your life and your thinking and your behavior dead land stuff? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Does one of these catch you out? You say, yeah, you know what? I think that's what the angel would say to me. So not all of them. Man, all of them, you'd, you'd just you know, be in your house overwhelmed for a long time. But maybe one of them, you say, yeah, you know, right now, here's, I think, something that's, that's tripping me up. And the angels might ask me a pretty provocative question about why that's where I'm hanging out instead of the place that has been provided for me by all that Jesus has done. Don't devalue the resurrection of Jesus by selling out to something that's part of the world that was before that. Eagerly receive all that it has brought to us. Live into the victory. Look for the living among the living, not among the dead. Why don't we pray? Father, help us to understand the tremendous impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not just in our heads or for our salvation, but that everything really, really has changed. And so we who so easily just let old programs kick into place need to change those programs, need to abandon them, need to... um, to erase them and accept what is not just an upgrade, but what is a whole new operating system that has come because it's empowered by the events that we celebrate this weekend. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.